This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we'll be diving into Blackstone, the world's largest alternative asset manager. Founded in 1985 as a boutique M&A advisory business with $400,000 of seed capital, the firm now manages over $600 billion across private equity, real estate, credit, and hedge fund strategies. In this breakdown, we'll start by discussing Blackstone's business model and how it has taken advantage of a structural tailwind in the form of low bond yields. Then, we'll dive into the different ways Blackstone earns money, how that's changing, and what else management has done to make the business more shareholder-friendly. Finally, we'll cover Blackstone's competitive strengths, their brand, and scale, explaining how they were built and how they are deployed today. To help me break down Blackstone, I'm joined by Mark Rubenstein, former hedge fund manager and now the writer of Net Interest. So Mark, thank you for joining us to break down Blackstone. Given that it's a 35-year-old business that has evolved over the course of the last decades, I thought a good place to start would be to talk about the corporate history, the founding story. What is Blackstone? How did it come to be? And what is it today? Back in the early 1980s, Steve Schwartzman, who was the co-founder of Blackstone with his partner, Pete Peterson. Both worked at Lehman. Schwartzman was the head of global M&A at Lehman. Pete Peterson was the chairman and CEO of Lehman. He'd been in that role through most of the 1970s into the early 80s. In 84, Peterson was ousted. There was a tension within Lehman between the banking side of the business and the trading side of the business. Pete Peterson was a banker, And he lost out in a power struggle to Lou Glucksman, who was the trader, the archetypal Wall Street trader. He left the firm, but stayed in contact with Schwartzman. And they decided in 84, 85, that they wanted to go into business together. Lehman subsequently fell into hard times. It was bought by American Express. Schwartzman, as the M&A banker, actually sold the business to American Express. So after about a year... He left. And in October 1985, they launched their business, Blackstone. They threw $200,000 each of their own money. They were clearly very successful men by then in their own names into the business. They came up with the name Blackstone, founded the company in October 85 as a private investment banking firm. It had an M&A franchise because that's what Schwartzman knew. But really, they wanted to do LBOs which was a market that was booming in the mid-1980s. And so if you kind of consider two gentlemen who put in their own personal money into the behemoth that's become a $650 billion asset manager today, what was it that was their core competencies that they made all their money doing in the beginning? And what did that enable them to do over the course of the last couple of years as they evolved the business into its current form? Well, they started off doing leverage buyouts. So leverage buyouts are simply a structure where you buy a company 
inject some equity, usually quite a small piece of equity, raise some debt, and through corporate intervention, through management intervention, the idea is that you generate some value at the operating level as well as on the financial side. So that was kind of the bread and butter business. That was the LBOs that they started off doing. They raised their first fund about a year after they launched in 86 to do LBOs, to do private equity, corporate private equity, which is the legacy of this business. Over the years, they have diversified into other asset classes, into real estate in the early 90s, into hedge funds. And so today, it's a $650 billion of assets under management company. They're active in corporate private equity, real estate, hedge funds, and credit. It's the whole range of alternatives in the field of alternative asset management. And so are there some examples of some of those early LBO type transactions they did and the success of those that led them to be able to increase the size and the scope of their funds? So first of all, they benefited from some tailwinds. They launched in 85. In the late 80s, interest rates were quite low. Wall Street had been deregulated actually 10 years prior, which gave them opportunities that they may not otherwise have had. So the tailwinds were there, but they raised a fund. They targeted a billion dollars. No private equity fund had been raised of that magnitude ever before. They didn't get a billion dollars. They got about 850 million. And the very first transaction was a company called Transdoll. And it's a good example of the kind of business they did. So what they did was they did a deal to buy the transportation business of a existing corporate. They renamed that business Transdoll. They put in a small amount of equity. They borrowed the rest from Chemical Bank. Within two years, they'd done a 4X on that equity tranche. And they finally sold this business. And it kind of gives an indication of the timeline here as well. So they bought the business 87. They sold the last chunk of it out in 2003, ultimately 26x return. The overall fund did similar kinds of transactions. The overall fund did to just over 2.5x and they were set up. That was a very good performing fund, which meant that when they went back to the market a few years later to raise their second fund, they had a performance track record to raise that off the back of. And if we take a step back here and we think about how a prototypical LBO fund makes money, I think it's interesting if you look at it like a real business, right? There are inputs and then there are outputs. And the inputs in the case of a alternative asset manager that does LBOs is their investor's capital along with their own. And the outputs are essentially the performance that they realize on the capital they put to work. But can you help to break down in a first principles way how private equity funds make money? So you're absolutely right, inputs and outputs. The input is they raise money from third-party investors. So the billion that they targeted in their first fund in 87 came from pension funds, insurance companies, endowments. And there are two sources of revenue that they generate, broadly two sources of revenue that they generate through the process. The first is a management fee. They take a management fee, just like any classical asset management company, can be between 1% and 2% of the funds they're managing on behalf of those pension funds, endowments, and so on. And then in addition, they take a carried interest, typically about 20% on 
any realization gains they generate when they exit the investment. And this is where the timing comes in because although the management fee accrues quite regularly, it's kind of a recurring stream of income, the realization event happens, it's very back-end loaded. So I mentioned that very first deal they did, they made the initial investment in 87. The exit didn't come through until 2003. If you like, that's the payday. Most of the, from a input-output perspective, most of the crystallization, the realization event, the profit comes at the back end through that exit mechanism. So if I'm understanding it correctly, ultimately it's a scale game that makes these firms so successful, right? If you can accumulate the most funds and do the biggest deals, you're setting yourself up for the highest potential upside. What was it about Blackstone that allowed it to grow into such a large institution over the course of the last 35 years? So the company itself talks about a virtuous circle. And they talk about three elements within that virtuous circle. Investment performance, investor confidence, and then innovation. Now, what's different about asset management is that these circles, they're more difficult than you might see in other industries because of the time lags involved. So kind of customer delight, if you like, doesn't come instantaneously. It comes in a typical classical asset management structure, maybe three or five years down the line. That's kind of the time horizon over which performance is typically adjudicated. For a fixed term fund, like the kind of private equity funds that Blackstone was raising, it can be 10 years plus. Blackstone's been around for over 35 years now. They, through that period, have been able to demonstrate good performance, but it took time. So that second fund was raised six years after the first fund. It took time for investors to understand that there was performance available here and that that could be replicated. Now, breaking that down into more elements, if we think about performance, there's the process that Blackstone applies, there's the scale that you mentioned. And it's not obvious that scale should benefit. If we think about traditional fund management, certainly on the active side, there are diminishing returns typically to scale. Blackstone argues that scale is their niche because they can do much larger deals than others can do. And then also, there's an integration there. Because they do private equity and hedge funds and real estate and credit, often there is inevitably a pool of capital somewhere in the business that's able to do something. And there's some intelligent sharing that goes on. And there is examples. So just take life sciences, for example. They recently entered life sciences. They do that on the real estate side, but they also buy directly life sciences companies out of a specific fund. So there's kind of sharing that goes on. The company is quite small. So 650 billion of assets under management is large, but there's only just over 3,000 employees here. So it's kind of big enough that people, everyone knows everyone else, and there's a structure that allows that information sharing to take place. And so those are the key elements, process, scale, and then that idea of integration, which I think Blackstone does quite well. And so if you consider Blackstone's success in the context of market structure, what is it that's made alternative asset management such a large, growing, and lucrative industry? So just to frame that firstly, it's still a small industry. If you think about the bond and equity markets globally, there's about 250 trillion US dollars of tradable securities in those asset pools. 
alternatives, which are defined as everything else. So private equity, real assets, be they real estate or infrastructure assets, private credit and hedge funds, typically less liquid. That's about 14 trillion of assets under management against the 250 in the public markets. There's been considerable growth there. If you go back five, six, go back between five and eight years, you were looking at a market size of 8 trillion. So we've grown from 8 trillion to 14 trillion. And behind that growth has been a reach for yield, ultimately. Historically, what alternatives provided was higher returns, higher absolute returns. And the kind of rule of thumb going back to the foundation of Blackstone was kind of a 20% target return, gross, maybe 15% on a net basis. The quid pro quo was as an investor, you'd be giving up liquidity. And what's happened more recently with the decline in interest rates is that that target rate has gone down and investors are prepared to give up liquidity for lower returns. And so the market opportunity, the TAM, if you like, has kind of grown because Blackstone is no longer just active in that 15% plus net return marketplace. They're active increasingly in the kind of 4 to 8% return marketplace as well. And so I'm thinking about a business with $650 billion in AUM and growing. What does that translate into in terms of revenue and margins and returns to shareholders? So there are two sources of revenue. The first is management fees. They take a cut of that $650 billion. Actually, it's a bit less because not all of the $650 is fee earning at any one time but they take a cut of the fee earning assets under management, which is about just less than a percent. It's about 90 basis points, 0.9% of assets under management. That translates into about $5 billion a year of fee-related earnings. Historically, and then the second source is performance and incentive fees. Historically, performance and incentive fees was the biggest component of the two. Historically, that was about two-thirds of the pie. Management fees were one-third. More recently, that has reversed. And so the management fees, this $5 billion a year, now represent around two-thirds of the earnings. And the performance and incentive fees is about a third. Now, we'll talk in a short while as to why that is. But the second stream of revenues is those performance and incentive fees. In a fixed-life fund, like a private equity fund or a real estate fund, where investors allocate their money, Blackstone deploys it, they crystallize the gains when they make exits and take the fees then. They are taking about 20%. And in the case of the hedge funds and the credit funds, it varies between, let's say, between 10 and 20%. The margins are quite high because of the scale economics of this business. So on the fee-related earnings on those 5 billion, they extract a margin right now of about 55%. That's been going up. It's been going up about a percentage point every year for the past few years. Is that after paying their investment professionals their salaries and compensation? Exactly. Exactly. So about 46% of that 5 billion goes to investment professionals in compensation. In addition, they take a piece of the incentive fee and performance fee as well. 
And so the overall, that kind of boils down to an overall margin, the overall EBIT margin on the business is about 45%. It's pretty high relative to most S&P 500 companies because of the scale economics, it employs 3,000, just over 3,000 people, 3,100 people. Arguably, they could run a trillion dollars with not many more than 3,100 people, hence the increasing returns to scale. Pretty beautiful to get $5 billion just for turning on the lights, huh? So maybe this is a good time to kind of dig deeper into some of the business units that they have today and the strengths of those units and how they've grown. So maybe we start with corporate private equity, which we've touched upon, just to understand the size of it, and then transition into real estate, hedge fund solutions, and credit. So of the four, private equity, it's the legacy business. They are doing broadly the same kinds of things now as they were doing back in 1986-87. Of the $650 billion of assets under management, corporate private equity represents about 30%. And just to break it down, of the $650 billion, corporate private equity is 30%, real estate is 30%, hedge funds are about 15%, and credit is 25%. So looking at those in turn, corporate private equity, 30%, broadly the same as they were doing before back in the early 1990s. They now own 250 companies. So Blackstone Funds owns 250 companies. They employ indirectly over half a million people in these companies. The most recent deal they did, it was the biggest leverage buyout since the financial crisis, $30 billion plus transaction was Medline. So that's corporate private equity. That's about 30% of their assets under management. Second is real estate. Real estate in the early 90s, Steve Schwartzman recognized, and the team broadly, recognized that they were at the bottom of a real estate cycle in the United States. Their first transaction, they didn't have an explicit fund at this stage. They invested in real estate out of the corporate private equity business. Interestingly, John Gray, who's currently the COO, president of the firm, the anointed successor to Steve Schwartzman, he joined within real estate as a 21-year-old. I think he was a second employee in the real estate division. There's a number of funds there as well. Third bucket is hedge funds. It's about 15%. Dates back similar time to real estate. Back in 1990, this was before Blackstone went public, Blackstone partners were wanting to invest their own money in hedge funds. They set up internally an entity which allocated to other hedge funds on their behalf. They opened that up to outside investors. And it's now one of the world's largest allocators to third-party hedge funds. And then finally, credit. It's about 25% of the business of the assets under management. And this business dates really to the aftermath of the financial crisis, when banks pulled back from lending to the real economy. And an opportunity opened up for private equity firms, alternative asset managers, to lend directly to small businesses through business development companies, or more directly through credit funds. And so Blackstone acquired, they were public by this stage, they acquired a company called GSO, they've since renamed it, and it is one of the largest credit-oriented managers in the world. And so the credit business now does private credit, it also does liquid credit as well. Increasingly, they're working on that side of the business 
with insurance companies, which is an interesting growth opportunity for the company. And why is it that alternative asset managers have been so attracted to insurance businesses? So it comes back to this search for yield. On the liability side of their balance sheet, insurance companies have to satisfy certain return requirements. They've got a demand for returns, let's call it 5%. But on the asset side, the bond markets haven't been, in recent years, been able to provide those kinds of returns. And so one of the peers of Blackstone, it was Apollo, recognized more than 10 years ago now that there was an opportunity for insurance companies and alternative asset managers to kind of converge. And it will provide for the alternative asset manager a source of permanent capital. This would be capital that wouldn't go away wouldn't be redeemed the way a traditional fund structure would be redeemed. So it was permanent capital, very attractive. And for the insurance company, the ability by doing direct credit and originating credit to pick up some kind of yield enhancement. Actually, it wasn't even new to Apollo. Warren Buffett developed this strategy back in 1967, when through Berkshire, he bought an insurance company in Omaha. But it hadn't really been copied and it hadn't been deployed outside of equity investing into alternatives investing at scale until Apollo and then subsequently KKR and Blackstone have copied the strategy. And so in order to be a successful alternative asset manager, you really need two things. You need the ability to raise funds or a funding mechanism like the insurance businesses that you recently mentioned, and you need performance. On the funding side, obviously, insurance is a creative way to raise capital, but there are also other institutions that they go to. What type of partners does someone like a Blackstone generally find in order to fund their investments and help to fund finance the equity checks? So there are three verticals here, and you've mentioned two of them. The first is the insurance companies. The second is their institutional investors, pension funds, endowments, and so on. The third is high net worth, private wealth. Traditionally, most of the assets were raised in the institutional bucket. And if you go all the way back to that very first fund, they raised money from life insurance companies, they raised funds in the US and in Japan. When they went public in 2007, they actually took in some money from the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund. AIG itself is quite interesting. AIG relationship goes back a long way. Back in 1998, AIG took a stake in them, but also that kind of crystallized the relationship because they were managing AIG money. So, so I've traversed two of these buckets here, but insurance companies, institutions. The third bucket is private wealth. And about 10 years ago, Blackstone identified retail, private wealth, as being a source of opportunity. Kind of is consistent with this idea that 20% is no longer the target rate anymore. The rate is a little bit lower. There are private wealth individuals who are prepared to give a bit of liquidity for slightly better returns, but not those top returns. And so they rolled out a private wealth strategy. And right now they're taking in about $20 billion a year of sales through that channel. And so I think you alluded to it a bit earlier, but I think it's important to note in the case of an alternative asset manager, an IPO is a somewhat 
differentiated event relative to a prototypical company. Because typically, if I'm a company that's IPOing, I am selling shares into the public markets to raise capital to do my core competency. But it's a bit more nuanced in the case of an alternative asset manager. Can you help us to understand why someone like Blackstone would IPO? Yeah, it is a bit more nuanced because there's a classical principal agent tension in any asset management business, typically between the asset owner, pension fund, the insurance company, and the asset manager. And whereas that can be reconciled, certainly the carried interest creates some degree of alignment. Still, frequently, it's in the interests of the asset manager to grow as big as possible in order to take 20% of a bigger piece and 1% to 2% management fees, which may not be in the interests of the allocator of those assets, the pension company or insurance company. And so there is that tension. If you throw in a third stakeholder, which is outside shareholders, owners of the GP, if you like, it creates even more complications. Blackstone decided it wanted to go public in 2007. It decided it wanted to do that because the currency of the stock would be useful for retention and also to allow it to make acquisitions. And if you think about it, if you look at the split of economics between those three stakeholders, they're as follows. So if you go back five years, the limited partners, the investors in the funds have taken out net of fees, about $100 billion. That's been their return on an absolute dollar basis. Employees have taken out about $10 billion through compensation, and shareholders have taken about $15 billion. So that's kind of the split of the economics between the three. So Mark, in the world of publicly traded alternative asset managers, clearly you have this subset of private equity type investors, but you also have a behemoth like Berkshire. And the market values them in very different ways, whether it be a multiple of book value or a multiple of fee generating AUM or fee income. How would an investor value something like Blackstone versus something like Berkshire or even like a Pershing Square Holdings? I think Berkshire owns the assets. So Berkshire's valuation hinges on the valuation of those underlying assets. Blackstone runs a balance sheet light model. Blackstone, of the $650 billion, directly invests 5% or so off its own balance sheet in the underlying funds. So there's a greater churn in Blackstone. That generates fees, which the market likes, but there's no net asset value to speak of to support the valuation. Actually, there's an interesting point here because the stock was re-rated in 2019, and part of that was a realization of greater fee earning assets relative to performance fees. Historically, performance fees were two-thirds of the total earnings and fees, management fees were one-third. And the market would typically place a higher multiple on the management fees, $5 billion a year, because of their recurring nature rather than the performance fees. There was a suspicion actually that these funds were kind of melting ice cubes, which is something one would never consider in the case of Berkshire, for example, that once the fund had run its course, it would be liquidated, and then Blackstone would have to go right back to the beginning and raise a new fund. And that changed as the business mix changed, and they were able to attract more insurance capital, more retail money, more perpetual capital. And now of the $650 billion, about 150 is perpetual capital, 
and that throws off greater fee-related earnings, which are valued more highly in the market. So fundamentally different from Berkshire, and actually there's been a shift in the valuation within Blackstone itself over the past few years. I think the key difference being you're not going to capitalize a stream of earnings if you don't think that it's going to be durable in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And so historically, there's this mantra around private equity as barbarians at the gate. And I would say that the externalities associated with the industry have not been exclusively positive. What is it about Blackstone today that helps to fray some of those concerns around the historical barbarians at the gate? Yeah, that is right. So Blackstone will tell you that they own 250 companies. They employ over half a million. They will tell you about some of the benefits that accrue to the employees of those companies and that the kind of asset stripping legacy of the LBO is not what they do. What they increasingly are forced to do, given their scale, is do bigger and bigger transactions. And the scope to extract value from those transactions is a bit different from the way value is extracted in the smaller transactions. Increasingly, they think about investing on a kind of a thematic basis, rather than being bottom up and identifying, let's say, a cost opportunity, a cost cutting opportunity in a company. They'll think very much top down about an industry area where there is some underlying, there's a macro theme around growth. So life sciences, for example, if you think about e-commerce, they're not directly investors in e-commerce companies, but they recognized in the real estate business that they can invest in content, in studios, let's say, or again, on the life science side, in specialized real estate that houses life science businesses. So very much top-down kind of thematic approach to investing, which is required given the scale they're now operating on. And so as a founder-led business, how important is Steve Schwartzman to the future of Blackstone? And how are they planning for the transition to new leadership? Well, he's clearly been integral. The firm is literally named after him. If you think about what he's brought to the industry, there's a number of interesting elements. So he actually started his career in the public market. He started his career as a securities analyst for DLJ, which is now part of Credit Suisse. And he tells an interesting story about how when he was at a analyst's meeting, he wanted to ask the CEO some questions about the business. Every question he asked, he got the response, can't tell you that, it's insider information. And he came away really frustrated about this constraint on public markets. And one of the reasons why he flipped into private markets was in order to access all of the information. He says investing is hard enough with the information, never mind having one arm tied behind your back. And that's kind of led him forward. He talks, he talks about information being the most important asset in business. And one of the things Blackstone has done very well through the integration of its different investment areas is to cross-reference information and use information in order to make better investment decisions. So that's the key element. Another issue, and you can kind of see this in the longevity of Blackstone as a firm, it's 35 years old, succession is in place. So unlike other investment firms, it will continue beyond Schwartzman. It took him over a year 
when raising the first private equity fund in 85, in 86, 87, to raise that money. But he did it in the end. And the notion that one has to put in the time is very important. And then the final thing is don't lose money. So over the 35-year history of Blackstone, this has been a preeminent idea that Schwartzman has conveyed is this idea of not losing money. Now, other investors talk about it as well, managing the downside as well as the upside. There's various ways to frame it. But if you don't lose money, clearly you can stay in business for the following day. And that's been central through his thinking to the culture at Blackstone. It's interesting because if you think about how cultures are established at some of these people businesses, there is prestige associated with the name. And if you think about some of Wall Street's most well-respected institutions, going back 25 years, a lot of those that have mattered no longer do. You think about DLJ, Lehman Brothers and the likes that are no longer organizations of substance or even exist at all. How can you create a culture in asset management that provides for longevity? And is it a function of the liabilities of the funding structure or the assets and the intangibles and the people? It's really hard. And actually, it's the exception, I think, rather than the rule. Typically, an investment management business can be so linked in with the investment skills of the founder that it's very difficult to institutionalize, which is why you get a lot of small hedge funds, which build up assets, very large assets into management quite quickly, and then often turn into private family offices or just close down altogether. And the other side of the barbell, you get the likes of BlackRock, huge, very, very institutional fidelity, huge, very, very institutionalized asset management businesses, which are more around marketing than they are necessarily around specific investment performance or in a particular fund. Clearly across multiple funds, there will be investment performance, but within a specific investment fund, there might not be. So Blackstone is the exception. It's very, very difficult. Hedge funds haven't really, there's one listed hedge fund, Sculptor, formerly Oxif. I mean, there are several others, but that's the most notable, which came to the market at the similar time to Blackstone and the other private equity firms. But they haven't been as successful in the public markets. And it's very difficult. And I think Blackstone has got around that by diversifying across asset classes. And to your point, instilling a culture, remaining sufficiently small, 3,000 employees, much less than DLJ or Lehman, which enables that culture to persist. And so in the context of competition, I think we're kind of boiling down to what is it that makes Blackstone so successful? Pensions, endowments, institutions, high net worth individuals have the ability to allocate their capital to a wide range of institutions, some as small as a billion dollars of assets under management and some as large as Blackstone at hundreds of billions of dollars. What is it that convinces those investors to continue to allocate more and more capital to Blackstone in particular? What is it that makes this business so successful? So there's a number of elements. The first one is performance. 35 years of history, private equity has delivered over those 35 years a realized return of 2.1x, real estate 2.2x, tactical opportunities has done 1.8x. So a track record of performance. Hilton's a pretty good example. And it's a good example of the integration that takes place within Blackstone, because this was a deal. Hilton was bought in 2007. It was 
a real estate deal, but it was also an operating business deal. So Hilton Hotels owned real estate, but there was also a management business in there that operated the hotels. The timing of this acquisition was really bad. Couldn't have been worse. Just before the financial crisis in 2007, the timing of this deal. And at one point, they were sitting on some losses there. But they turned it around through operating improvements in the underlying business. And ultimately, they returned $14 billion to investors from, at one stage, looked like a really bad deal. And certainly, even today, the timing of that deal was pretty bad. Even with hindsight, it's clear they didn't get a good price for that deal, given what was immediately around the corner. So performance is one element. Integration and their ability to access deals that other investors can't access because of the scale, because of the relationships, because of the duration of the franchise is another. And then scale kind of linked to that is the third. And so if you look at alternative asset managers today, private equity institutions, I'm kind of considering this in the context of the bank versus the neobank. And it's kind of starting to seem like alts are becoming more and more like banks of yesteryear. At what point do they run into pressures from potential regulatory or oversight that make their core competencies somewhat threatened? It's certainly true that the industry has benefited from some of the constraints that have been put up around banks. So Blackstone's credit business and the credit businesses of Apollo and the others in the industry as well benefited from a huge tailwind post-financial crisis when banks were unable or it was more expensive for them to lend to the real economy. But there's no regulatory pressure on the private equity firms to dial back from that. And so it is a risk. It's always a risk. I think if they've shown one thing that's been quite good over the 35 years, it's an ability to adapt to the changing regulatory environment. Although historically, that's been more of a tailwind than a headwind. And so to kind of wrap it all up, I think we've done a good job characterizing their ability to accumulate AUM. But if it were to boil down to one thing, whether it be elite deal makers, Steve himself, innovative deals or proprietary relationships, what is it that enables them to continue to go back to the drawing board and find new opportunities and not only identify them, but redeploy the capital in high returning areas? Is it culture? Is it people? What is it about Blackstone that makes it so special and so large? To a degree, it's all of the above. So by being present across multiple markets, yet being kind of small enough that people know each other and are able to interact through that culture that's developed that allows them to interact, combined with the access that they have, there are some benefits. And I think what they've done, it's kind of a secret source that other asset managers deploy, but to do it at scale and to adapt to scale. So this idea about working from a thematic basis, thinking about rental housing coming out of the financial crisis, and then linking up a real estate theme with an operating theme by turning a portfolio of rental properties into a platform, which is then spun off. That's another example. So many examples of using scale and integration to their advantage. And clearly the challenge for any asset manager is to sustain performance. But the benefit I guess Blackstone has is it's broadly diversified now across multiple strategies and it's innovated across multiple strategies. And also certainly on the fixed 
term fund business, they have discretion over when to make the exits and so can manage that performance a bit better than liquid asset managers might be able to. And so as an outsider looking in, what is a lesson that an investor can take away from studying Blackstone? Clearly, it took the public markets a long time, or at least a longer time than it maybe should have, to realize how virtuous and successful this business would be, and really the durability and sustainability of those fear and cash flows. What is it that investors can identify and take away from this story and apply to other areas of the market? It's a really good observation. It did take a long time. Company IPO'd in 2007, and it wasn't really until 2019 that it was re-rated. It takes a long time. It takes a long time. I think the takeaway is it takes time to put the numbers up, to gather the confidence of the market. What's interesting in this case is the investors, the LPs, had confidence that was above what the stock market, the third-party investors had for many, many years because Blackstone had no trouble raising multi-billion dollar funds, 20 billion plus dollar funds. But for the stock market, it takes time. I think that's the lesson. And Steve Schwartzman tried to second guess that. Steve Schwartzman, several years ago, would frequently bemoan the valuation, complain publicly about the valuation of the stock relative to listed liquid asset managers. But however powerful he is, moan as much as he wanted to, the stock market needed to see those numbers and needed to see that track record before the re-rating happened. Yeah. So I think that the lesson being when there's a team whose results continue to speak for themselves, in some cases, it may not be a varying perception, but it's the durability and persistence of those teams that make for the potential for re-rating in what is now a best-in-class asset. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, Mark, Blackstone is a fascinating story. At $650 billion, I'm sure, before we turn around, we'll have a trillion dollars of assets under management, which will create some really interesting conversations and exploration. But we thank you for helping to break this business down. Thanks, Zach. Blackstone's business is fascinating, is that it has seemingly unbundled the services of merchant banks and evolved into a sustaining platform for a wide range of alternative assets. While their assets under management continue to grow at a rapid pace, the ethos and culture of Blackstone as instilled by Stephen Schwartzman, permeates throughout. Schwartzman has a saying that captures this. There are no brave old people in finance, because if you're brave, you mostly get destroyed in your 30s and 40s. If you make it to your 50s and 60s and you're still prospering, you have a very good sense of how to avoid problems and when to be conservative or aggressive with your investments. Founded in 1985, Blackstone enters the back half of its 30s, building their asset management empire by leaning in aggressively when opportunity meets preparation. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.